Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2, we're looking at verses 11 to 15. Last week, we sort of began a series within a series, because while we are trekking our way verse by verse through the letter of 1 Timothy together, I thought that it might be good and helpful to sort of hit the pause button here in verses 8 to 15 and to address this section and other related biblical passages. And really this whole issue of gender roles of men and women in the church in much greater depth and much greater detail. Now why? Why, why would we slow down here for at least the next three weeks or so and focus almost exclusively on this issue of gender roles. And as I thought about it this week, a few reasons came to my mind of why it would be good and helpful. These are in no particular order. The first reason is because of the cultural reason. I said it last week, but as you look at our world today, it is becoming more and more apparent that our culture wants to blur and even erase altogether all gender distinctions between men and women. And this is not only happening cosmetically, many are altering their physical appearance in order to look like the opposite sex, contending that one's gender is something fluid, it's based on personal preference. But we even see this blurring church in these distinctions happening functionally as well. And that is to say that men and women really have no unique giftings, no differing roles or responsibilities to fulfill in the home or in the church. And brothers and sisters, the growing opposition from the outside world toward biblical truth is becoming even more open and even more aggressive. And this issue of gender is at the leading edge of that. And sadly, as I said, it's even happening in the wider evangelical church as well, where these roles and these distinctions are being abandoned, they're being questioned. And so I, I think it's important to have this discussion in times like these. And listen, I'm no prophet, but this is where I believe the church is going to face some of its greatest opposition in the days ahead. Mark my words. But there's a second reason. It's called the practical reason. Because that leads us to ask the question then, okay, if we're going to be a church that holds to complementarian views, and I told you last week that simply means that we believe that God has designed men and women with distinct roles that complement one another, if, if we're going to be complementarians, then 
what are those roles uniquely and specifically for men and women? If there are certain things that women can't do or restrictions for women, then where can they serve? Even in our own church, where do we feel those boundaries are biblically? What can women do and how do these views get worked out practically in a church? That's a really important question. And some churches, even many complementarian churches, are going to come to differing conclusions on how these complementarian views get fleshed out because some of these issues may not be as black and white as you think. For example, if a woman woman cannot serve in the office of elder or pastor, which we would affirm, can she ever teach men? What about a mixed Sunday school class? What about a small group? Can women serve as deacons? How about in our corporate gatherings? Can she pray? Can she read scripture? Can she sing? What can she do? What does it mean to remain silent? Do you see the whole host of issues here? This is a very important topic, practically, to be fleshed out in a church. Here's the third reason. The reason I think this is worthy of our time is because this whole discussion of The roles of women is often reduced to whether or not role determines worth. Role determines worth. In other words, does a differing role mean difference in worth or value? Can can equality and difference exist together side by side? Because some tend to think that Underneath much of this discussion, at least implicitly, is that by limiting a woman's role in what she can or cannot do, it must mean that we are diminishing her worth, her value, when nothing could be further from the truth. And so it's no wonder then that this discussion can become so heated, sparks fly, controversy, because many women feel this strikes at the very core of who they are. And thus, it is extremely personal, extremely sensitive. But then finally, fourth reason, I think this is important, and perhaps the most important, is the theological reason. Because if this is who God has designed us to be as men and women, then this discussion gets at the very foundation of who we are at the level of personhood. There is more to being a man and being a woman than your plumbing. And then above all that, according to Ephesians chapter 5, if God has created men and women with distinct roles in order to paint this wonderful, beautiful, living picture of this union between Christ and the church, then brothers and sisters, any blurring of those lines, any Distortion of those lines, it is tearing apart the very picture of the gospel. So yeah, it matters. And for all these reasons, I think it's good and helpful to wade through these issues more slowly, more carefully, in greater detail. And so here's where we're going over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to actually go all the way back to the beginning. Creation. Lay the foundation. 
Then next week, we're going to step outside of 1 Timothy. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 14, where Paul gives further instructions to help us understand these roles, God's order. And then, following Easter, we'll come back in more detail and deal specifically with 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I want to first read our text together this morning. So let me ask you to stand. Out of honor for the reading of God's word, I'm going to begin in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Let me just sort of remind you of the context of verses 8 to 15. And first, let's just step back again and remember the wider context of this letter. Paul tells us, if you remember exactly why, he wrote this letter in chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 14. Where he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How to behave in the church. And so in chapter 2 now, as Paul gets more into these practical applications and instructions here, it's really all about life in the church. And so our text, verses 8 to 15, is also all about life in the church. So this isn't about the marketplace This isn't about the academy. This isn't about the public square. Yes, there are, I think, biblical principles here that we can apply to those areas, but that's way beyond the scope of this series. No, this text in verses 8 to 15 is all about how we live and function within the church, God's household, which is what the letter of 1 Timothy is all about. And we said that the context here is also corporate. It is it is congregational, the, the, the gathered church. A couple of weeks ago, if you notice in verses 1 to 7, we saw where Paul, he urges the church corporately when they gather to pray. This is to be the top priority of the church. And to pray in particular that all people get saved. Because God wants all people to be saved. And then last week, if you notice there in verses 8 to 10, we saw that Paul, he continues to talk about prayer in the church, but he gives gender-specific instructions based on what must have been going on in the church at Ephesus. So he urges the men to be holy when they pray, not to be given over to anger and quarreling in the church and conflict. And then to the women, he reminds them, not to dress immodestly so as to distract others in prayer and in worship. Ladies, don't let your standard of dress be determined by the culture, but by a heart of modesty and godliness. Don't compete with God for attention, ladies. 
But now, notice in verses 11 to 15, here's how it connects to verses 1 to 10. Here now Paul continues to address the women of the church directly and the men indirectly as to how they are to behave in the church. So, in verses 8 to 10... He deals with these two disruptions, these distractions in corporate worship of anger and immodesty. But here now, in verses 11 and 15, he has more that he wants to say to the women. Now why? Why why does Paul have more to say to the women than to the men? If you remember back at the beginning of our series, I said that Studying the pastoral epistles, or any letters of the New Testament, it's sometimes like listening to half of a phone conversation, right? So, we, we only are hearing half of the conversation here from Paul, but I, I think there's enough information here and what we find in the pastoral epistles to understand why Paul wants to address gender roles and specifically here the women of the church. So what do we gather from the context? Well, it seems that these false teachers in Ephesus, whom Paul is writing against and whom Timothy is to deal with, are having, for whatever reason, a significant influence on the women of the church. Because apparently, they are persuading and many, leading many women to follow them in their teachings. Where do we see that? Well, notice over 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul's going to talk about widows in the church, but you actually, actually see what's going on in the lives of many of these women and the problems that these false teachers are creating. In chapter 5, notice in verses 9 and 10, he's going to talk about the type of godly widows who the church is to care for, and he commends them in verses 9 and 10. But then look in verse 11. In contrast, look at what some of the women in the church was happening. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So notice that many of these women, apparently, are abandoning the more traditional female roles, like marrying, bearing children, managing their households. And instead, look at verse 15, they are Did you notice that? Straying after Satan. If you remember, according to chapter 4, verse 1, that's what these false teachers were doing. They were teaching the doctrine of demons. And we saw in chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul already had to hand Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. So it seems straying after Satan then is connected to this false teaching. It seems that these false teachers are having a strong influence on the women of the church. And then, if you go over and look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, speaking of these false teachers, Paul says there, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women with their teaching, I think, 
burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So it seems that at least part of their false teaching was that they were encouraging these women to discard the more complementarian view of women's roles and embrace in favor more egalitarian approach to the roles and responsibilities of men and women. Which brings us to our text. Look in chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. And notice Paul's prohibition for women. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There is perhaps no more controversial verse in the Bible than that one. (laughs) Every single word of that verse is contested. Now, we're going to look at this verse in detail in a few weeks here, but I want you to notice that at least just a simple Basic reading of verse 12, it seems as though Paul is prohibiting, he is restricting women from doing two things. Verse 12, teaching and exercising authority over a man. Told you it was controversial. Now, why would Paul feel the need to give this prohibition? Well, the only logical explanation, it seems, is because apparently in the church at Ephesus, some of the women were teaching both men and women when the church gathered, and according to verse 12, they were exercising authority, which according to chapter 5, verse 17, are the two very same responsibilities of a pastor, of an elder. So it seems some of the women were teaching men and assuming the role of pastor. And by doing so, what they're doing is they are distorting these God-given gender roles. And so Paul has to write to tell them to stop it. I do not permit this. Now, I said we're going to look at this verse in more detail in a few weeks. But this week, here, here, I want to just ask this question, why? Why? Why this prohibition? What is the reason, what is the basis for why Paul tells women in verse 12 that they cannot teach and exercise authority over men? And brothers and sisters, here is where the views diverge. Here is where complementarians and egalitarians part ways. So how then do we understand the reason for this prohibition here? Well, there are a few options. One interpretation would say that, and we'll talk about this more in detail in a few weeks, that really Paul is only talking here, prohibiting here a certain kind of teaching, a domineering kind of teaching. Or because it says with authority, it means pastoral authority, so they can teach men, but they can't serve as pastors. Another way of interpreting it, many do, would say this is simply a prohibition that is cultural. It's a prohibition that is time-specific. In other words, this isn't a blanket statement for all churches and all times and all places, but a very particular command for this particular church at this particular time. Maybe it has something to do with the false teaching and the women who were 
succumbing to that. Or maybe it's because women in this day weren't as educated as a man. Or it would be a cultural taboo for a woman to assume this position of authority in a culture like this. And therefore, it doesn't still apply to our culture and our time today. And there are many more. However, I think the answer here as to why Paul gives this prohibition is actually much simpler than that. In fact, he tells us why. Verse 13 and 14, look there, notice, it begins with the word for or because. So Paul is going to tell us now his reasoning for why women cannot teach and exercise authority over men. And notice, it isn't cultural. It isn't temporary. No, he roots it in the created order. He roots it in creation. He goes all the way back to the beginning. Look there, verse 13. For, because, here's why the prohibition, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So notice his reasoning here is as old as Adam and Eve. In other words, this is God's design. So underneath this text, notice, is Genesis. And beloved, I think that's where we have to start. In fact, I think it would be wrong. I think it would be a mistake to go first to passages that talk about what women can't do. Why? Because we must first address God's design more broadly. His good design. And because as complementarians, we believe these gender roles are established in creation. From the very beginning. For human flourishing. So in our remaining time this morning, I want to go back, hold your place there in 1 Timothy, and I want to camp out in Genesis 1 to 3. And I want you to see this morning seven implications or assumptions about gender roles in Genesis 1 to 3. And you say, wow, seven, we're going to be here all day. No, I, I promise to have you out for lunch. But I think we need to begin at the beginning. Now, just as a note, it's important that while Genesis 1 to 3 gives us good insights for a biblical picture of manhood and womanhood, what we don't see, though, in Genesis are explicit commands for men and women in these roles. No, what we glean here is more inferred. It's more implied. But the specifics are going to come later in the Bible, which shouldn't surprise us with the unfolding nature of God's revelation. But Genesis, it does lay out here, I think, several divine patterns, assumptions, inferences from which we can conclude certain truths about the ways in which men and women are designed by God. In fact, I think a helpful way to illustrate this would be to talk in terms of a blueprint and marching orders. So blueprint, marching orders. In other words, the opening chapters of the Bible, they give us more of the blueprint. They give us more of the overall picture. They don't, they don't tell us specifically how to build. They don't give us specific instructions, but it's more a blueprint. And the marching orders, the specific instructions are going to come later, right? 
1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 3. I mean, all over, right? Those are the more specific commands. So we're looking here at the, at the blueprint. This is the overall design. And they lay the foundation for a biblical manhood and womanhood. Notice these seven implications. Implication number one. Men and women are both created in the image of God. The book of Genesis opens by giving us here two chapters, notice, on the creation of the world and the formation of the garden prior to the fall. And at the end of chapter 1, on the sixth day, this is the very pinnacle of God's creation, he creates a man and he creates a woman. Genesis chapter 1, look there, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, first of all, just notice here that when God decides to create mankind, He creates them with two distinct genders, two sexes, male and female, he created them. In other words, mankind is not designed to be this androgynous being with no distinct gender, nor is gender, contrary to public opinion, something that is fluid, something that is changeable. No. Based on personal preferences. No, God is the one who creates us male and he creates us female. And yet, look there, both men and women, apart from anything else in all creation, this is the only thing in creation said to be this, they are uniquely, personally, directly created as image bearers of God. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So notice we see two distinct sexes and genders, and yet both are created in God's image. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on what it means to be created in the Imago Dei, the the image of God. What does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, many take it to mean mankind is to be this personal reflection of God's character. He's a little mirror, man and woman, to reflect God's goodness and his moral character. Others say it has more to do with man's ability to reason or his conscience or his creativity or his ability to have intimate relationships. Others would say, look there in verse 26, it has something to do with exercising dominion over creation. He he rules as God's, God's vice regent and his deputy over creation. And listen, all of those are true, all of those are true, but suffice it to say, at the very least, it means something about the man and the woman's role in relationship to the creation and in relationship, unique relationship to God. Both of them. Verse 26, both man and woman are given, notice, joint rule over creation. Verse 26, let us make man, mankind, in our image after our likeness, and let them, 
man and woman have dominion. Verse 28, look there. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. So the creation mandate, it isn't just given to the man. It's given to the man and the woman together, both of them. What's my point? Or really, what's Moses' point? Well, I think his point is that both the man and the woman alike bear this divine image equally. They are equals. There there is absolutely no inferiority here. No. And thus, both men and women possess equal worth. They possess equal dignity. The woman isn't less than the man. Eve wasn't inferior to Adam. No, they are equals. Equal in personhood, equal in importance, equal in rule over creation, equal in access to God. And this is the first, and I think the most important point that has to be made here. Why? Because functional difference doesn't mean ontological difference. That's a fancy way of saying the difference in function and role doesn't mean a difference in worth and dignity. No, men and women are created equal. She is your equal, brothers. Reminds me of what Peter says, if you remember 1 Peter chapter 3, to the husbands. He says to the, she is an heir with you of the grace of life. She was co-ruling over the first creation. She's going to be co-ruling over the second creation with you. She's an heir with you, men. So, there is no creative difference in terms of personhood. And yet, while they have equal worth and importance, there are differing roles, which leads to the second implication. Implication number two, God creates Adam first. God creates Adam first and then Eve. So if Genesis is one is more the wide-angle lens, we see the overall design for creation, then in Genesis 2, we see the zoom lens. Moses zooms in now in order to show us more carefully this relationship between the man and the woman, and more specifically, we see here the man being created before the woman. So while there is some sameness, there's also some difference. I said this before, as good Bible readers, one of the most important questions you can ask is, why is the author telling me this? Because Moses didn't have to include chapter 2, right? So why? Why did he include it? And what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that Moses goes to great lengths to describe in great detail the origin of the man and the woman. And what he wants us to observe very clearly is that Adam was created before Eve and Eve was created from Adam. So look at chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God forms the man from the dust of the ground. And then in verse 15, he takes a man and he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. 
Then in verse 18, notice it isn't Adam who says this, it's God who says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good, this is the only thing that isn't good in all creation. It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. And then, in great detail, notice in verses 21 to 24, this description of God causing the man to fall asleep, and he takes a rib from his side in order to make the woman. Look there, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Moses wants us to see that Adam was created before Eve and that the woman was created from the man. Why? Why is Moses telling us that? He didn't have to include that. Why? Here's why. Because the order matters. Because from the very beginning... He wants you to see Adam was created first. Why? Because Adam's better? He's more important? Is this like gym class? We're picking firsts? You don't want to be picked last? No. Because the order here, Adam's position in the creation narrative, it indicates his role as leader and protector. And that the woman being created second demonstrates her coming under his leadership and protection. The order matters. Now this is only an assumption from the text. But it would seem that if God didn't want any distinctions between men and women, as egalitarians will argue, why didn't he create the man and the woman at the same time? could have done that. And the reason is because he wants you to see clearly there's differing roles. And Adam's unique responsibility as the man to lead in relationship to Eve and she as the woman has the responsibility to follow and to affirm and to submit to his leadership. And this is to happen in the home and this is to happen in the church. In fact, the New Testament picks up on this very same idea of this order in creation as well. If you have your place there, still look back in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 13, notice Paul appeals to this very same principle as to why women aren't allowed to teach and exercise authority over men. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she used to remain quiet. Why? For Adam was formed first. The order matters. It mattered in creation. It matters in the church. Or, or look, also Paul's going to say this, we'll see in a couple of weeks, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says basically the same thing. He's talking about why women should cover their heads in worship and why men should not. And in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For man was not made, here's why, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So again, he's appealing here not to culture, 
Not to something time-specific. Not to her intelligence. Not to her abilities. He's appealing to God's created order. This argument is known as primogeniture. Primogeniture means firstborn. Meaning that in the Bible, what you see is that typically the firstborn, there are exceptions to this, right? Jacob and Esau, the younger will serve the older. But typically, the firstborn in the Bible has authority over the younger. And in the very same way, the order here matters. And I, I think, and so does Paul, it seems, that this is why this detail is included in Genesis chapter 2. Moses isn't just giving you history. He's giving you a theological reality. This is by God's design. And men, he has designed us to lead. He has designed us to protect and women to follow that leadership. And when you usurp that design in the home, in the church, you are usurping the created order. So what is the woman's role then? Implication number three, God creates the woman as a helper. The point is very explicit in Genesis 2.18. Look there. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So Eve was created from man, after man, equal in worth, and she was also created for man, a helper fit for him. Now, hear me very clearly. Helper is not a demeaning term. It carries no connotations of her diminished worth. In fact, you know who is often called a helper in the Bible? God. Psalm 33, verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. No, helper is a functional term. It is not a demeaning one. So just as God at times comes alongside His people in order to help them, so also the role of the woman in the relationship to her husband is to be that of a helper. Again, look at chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. If we aren't careful, we can psychologize Adam's aloneness. We tend to hear this a lot at weddings. Like, he needs a helper because he's lonely. He needs companionship, right? And that's not inappropriate. It's, that's one possible aspect. But helper here, it, it can't be separated from the broader context here of the creation mandate. So in other words, it wasn't good for man to be alone because by himself, he can't be fruitful and he can't multiply and he can't fill the earth. So again, there's complementarity here between the man and the woman. And Adam's aloneness, it wasn't because he was lonely. I mean, God could have created a golden retriever for that. 
No. He needed a helper fit corresponding to him because if mankind's going to have dominion over the earth, there must be a man to work the garden and there must be a woman to be his helper, his helpmate. And so the word helper, it signifies her role to help and assist and support the man in the task of ruling over the creation together and thus implying his leadership and her support in that leadership. Brothers, we need a helpmate. And she has a very specific realm of dominion in which only she can fulfill this. Ladies, you have an important role. Implication number four. I won't spend much time here, but I just want to note it. Because you may wonder why it's there. Implication number four. Adam exercises his leadership by naming the woman. Again, I think the point here is more implied. It's not explicit in the creation account. But in Genesis chapter 2, notice there, we see that part of Adam's rule over the creation is exercised in naming the animals. So look there in chapter 2, verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So he's exercising his dominion over the creation by naming the animals. But then... After God creates the woman from the rib of the man, look there in chapter 2, verse 23, Adam says, and notice the very first recorded words of human history are a man praising his bride. She's a treasure, brothers. 2.23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. So twice he names her because then in verse, chapter 3, verse 20, he called his wife's name Eve. Two times he names the woman. Why? Indicating his leadership. It's not in any way to compare women to animals. It's simply to say it was the responsibility of the man to lead in naming them. His naming shows his leadership. And just as a side note, notice, implications one to four all happened before the fall. This is all part of his design before sin ever enters into the world. Implication number five. The serpent subverts God's pattern of leadership by tempting the woman first. When the snake slithers into the garden and he goes first to the woman, he does so because he is attempting to subvert God's pattern. In other words, the serpent tempts Eve, not Adam. Look in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So he goes first to the woman. Why? 
Why, why go first to the woman? I mean, after all, wasn't it the man who was given the command not to eat? So why go to the woman? Because by doing so, church, the serpent is subverting the pattern of male leadership laid out by God in creation. That the man is to lead and the woman is to follow that leadership in the home and in the church. This is, this is God's pattern. Turning it upside down. Now, I'll say more about this again when we look at 1 Timothy 2, if you still got your place there. But notice in verse 14, I think this is Paul's very same argument here as well. In verse 14, again, he's giving the reason from creation and the fall why women can't teach or exercise authority over men, serve as role of elders or pastors. So in verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, there's from creation, then verse 14, and second reason, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, I do not believe that Paul is implying here that the reason why women can't serve as pastors or teach men is because they are somehow more susceptible to deception. They're more gullible, as some commentators say. No, not at all. Rather, Paul's making the point, I think Moses is making the point as well, that the serpent's design by going to the woman first was to overturn the created order. And thus undermining and usurping God's good design. And it seems that Adam is right there with her when the serpent approaches and tempts her. Because in fact, the text tells us that much in Genesis 3.6. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So Adam, he sees it and he does nothing at all. He stands by. He's not leading He's passive. He's allowing the woman to take the lead and undermining God's order and failing in his responsibility to lead. And as a result, the entire human race is plunged into sin and death and chaos and disorder. This is no small thing. Which leads to implication number six. Back in Genesis, Adam is reckoned by God responsible. The, res the representative head. Because Adam was with his wife and he did nothing. I mean, he should have just right there cut the head off the snake. The primary responsibility then for sin entering in the world fell to him. Why? He was responsible to lead and he failed. He's the representative. Sometimes you hear it called the federal head. Now, two places in the Bible make this abundantly clear. I just want to show you in Genesis 3, look there, after the fall, when God comes to the man and the woman, who does he rebuke first? If there were no gender roles, if there were no gender distinctions, as the egalitarian would say, then God should have rebuked the woman first, right? After all, she sinned first. But he doesn't. He goes to the man. 
Why? Because he bore the responsibility for what happened. He is the one who is responsible. He is the federal head. He's the representative of them both. Men, hear me. You bear the responsibility before God to lead your family. And you bear the responsibility before God to lead in this church. You see so many churches today and you think, where are the men? In fact, Paul picks up on this idea. Here's the second text, Romans chapter 5. Even though Eve was actually technically the one who sinned first, in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, he doesn't say through one woman, which would have been actually more accurate, through one man. Why? Well, of course, he's playing on Christ and Adam there, but Adam, as the head, he bears the weight of responsibility. It doesn't discount her personal sinning, but it is Adam who is ultimately held responsible. He's the head. He's the representative. He is responsible for leading. Which leads to our final implication. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's design is created order for men and women. And then after the fall, what happens to that relationship? How does it, how does it change? How does, how does sin affect the roles of men and women. Finally, implication number seven. The curse. Mankind's fall into sin. It affects men and women differently. And it disrupts their relationship as God intends. In Genesis 3, look there, shortly after the fall of man into sin, we see now how God's design for these complementary roles begins to be distorted. Isn't that, church, what sin does? Sin, sin affects, it, it disrupts, it distorts everything God designs as good. In fact, it really sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. And that because of now sin's entrance into the world, the man and the woman are going to now relate to each other in very distorted, very sinful ways. So these roles that were prior to the fall, good for the man and the woman, for their flourishing, for their happiness, are corrupted now by sin. How so? Well, notice as chapter 3 unfolds, we see that God's curse on the earth now affects men and women differently. And interestingly, it affects them where their unique created differences lie. For example, chapter 3, look there, verse 16. The woman who's meant to function as a helper to the man in filling the earth with her unique domain of childbearing will now, as a result of the fall, experience pain in childbirth as she bears the effects of the curse whether that be just through the natural childbirthing process or infertility, loss of children, whatever that may look like. Chapter 3, verse 16, To the woman, he, God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
And to the man, look there, he's intended to have dominion in working the ground in Genesis 2, but now he's going to do so among thorns and thistles by the sweat of his brow, chapter 3, verse 17. So notice the man and the woman are both experiencing the effects of the curse uniquely in their created differences as men and women. But not only that, the effects of sin, the effects of the curse will now even extend to their relationships with one another. This is true of men and women throughout history now. This is what's wrong in your homes. This is what's wrong in the church. This is what's wrong when you look at the world and the culture today. It is a distortion of God's design and the relationship between men and women. How so? Well, look there, verse 16. Whereas the man was created and called to lead, to care for, to protect. Chapter 3, verse 16, God says to the woman, because now of sin, he shall rule over you. Gordon Wynnum comments, this represents harsh, exploitative subjugation. So men, this means that our natural sinful tendencies will be for us to lead in a domineering way. Rule over you. As men, what was meant by God to be this gentle, gracious, loving leadership, we will be tempted to abuse that power and abuse that authority and abuse that leadership to be controlling and harsh and domineering. And brothers, listen to me, that is a perversion of God's design. But the curse also affects the woman. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And now notice this result of the curse in her relationship to her husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. Now men, as much as you would like to think this desire here is romantic desire, most likely is not. I'm sorry to burst your bubble there. No. And the reason I say that is because that word desire occurs only one other place, and it's in the very next chapter. Chapter 4, look there. And here, it's a desire for mastery, a desire for control. Genesis 4, 7, the Lord tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, that's the same word, to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain, sin wants to master you, it wants to rule over you, but you must master it. You must rule over it. And in the very same way now, because of sinful distortions within these gender roles, so to the woman, the Lord says, will desire her husband. She's going to desire to have mastery over him, control him. So in Genesis 3.17, because Adam listened to the voice of his wife, now she's going to, in sin, try to usurp that leadership and that rule. I mean, isn't that really at the heart of the feminist movement? And beloved, this is what sin does. 
It breaks and distorts God's good design for men and women, and it turns the created order upside down. So I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that what we are observing and what we are witnessing in our culture today is the very definition of what Paul calls in Romans chapter 1, the suppressing of the truth in unrighteousness. And this is exactly what was happening in the church at Ephesus, and that's exactly what is still happening in the world today. And this is why Paul tells Timothy that getting gender roles right in the church is one of the means by which we protect the gospel. And we uphold the truth as we image God's design. So listen, gender roles are no small thing. And ladies, hear me very carefully this morning. You glorify God in the distinct roles that God has entrusted to you. And there is great significance in being a woman. You are uniquely blessed. You are uniquely formed. You are uniquely gifted. And so there is a unique opportunity for God's glory to shine through you in a way that a man never could. He's called us men to lead and to do it sacrificially and to do it lovingly and to do it tenderly and to do it graciously. And both are unique, both are significant, and both together fully image forth God. And so when these roles are minimized, here's what happens. We undercut what it means to glorify God by behaving in the ways that he intends in the church. And Satan distorts that good design, but Christ has come to die to transform and reestablish God's order. You see this in Ephesians chapter 5 in the husband and wife relationship. And I think that even carries implications over into the church as well, from home to church. But you even see this pointing to Christ, his redeeming work of these gender roles right there in the middle of Genesis chapter 3. And I want to end here. I know you know it. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Notice. After the fall, God makes clear that a seed of the woman who will one day come and undo what the serpent has done. And the Lord, he makes this very clear, very direct, very prophetic promise to the serpent, Satan, in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." This is the very first promise, the very first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3. God promises that one day He's going to send one who's going to be born of the woman. He's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to be wounded by the serpent. He will bruise your heel, but He would in turn ultimately triumph over the serpent by inflicting a mortal wound. He's going to bruise your head. So the seed is ultimately going to conquer the serpent. And so in other words, this promised seed, this son who's going to come, he's going to undo what the serpent and sin had done to God's creation. He's going to come and he's going to reverse the curse. And he's going to restore men and women back to God's original design. And that is exactly 
what Christ has come to do and is living and dying and rising again. And brothers and sisters, listen to me very clearly. This is, this is the very same redeemed roles that we are now to image forth. In the home, in the church, as men and women, and so beloved, it's, it's no small thing. Gender roles matter. And the church will continue, this church will continue to uphold these gender roles as long as I have anything to say about it. This is a hill we must die on because it matters to the glory of God, to the protection of the gospel, and to the health of the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you entered in, Jesus, to this sin-ravaged world. The seed of the woman has come. And you've come for those who have spurned you, who have rejected you, who have denied you, who have sought their own ways. In many ways, eating from the tree because we think we're wiser than you. But you would send your son, the snake crusher, to us. Oh God, we praise you. That you would deal, Christ, with the decisive blow to the great enemy. That at the cross... You have undone what sin has done. You have reversed the curse and you are now even through the work of your spirit in your church restoring men and women back to what you have created and designed them to be. And so we pray, oh Father, that you would do that now in this church. We pray you would do that in the homes represented in this church. I pray for the men of this church, that you would raise up godly, strong, tender men to lead their homes, to lead in this church. I pray for the women of this church. God, thank you for godly women. Thank you for our wives. And I pray today in a culture that would lie to them and where we've seen even sinful distortions of this kind of leadership and headship, you would remind them of how significant they are to you, that they are co-heirs of the grace of life. And so, Father, we ask that you would by your Spirit, enable us as men and women to image forth this good design, to be a watching witness to the world so that the truth of the gospel would not be hindered and distorted by the way we function as men and women, but it might even more powerfully communicate to the world who you are and what you have done through the gospel of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.